Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space-time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts from drug users and activists to academics and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer. What could a better future hold? Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast. Welcome, I am welcome. Uh, your co-host coming from unceded Coast Salish territories, uh, Alex Betzos, and this is... Claire Zagorski, coming to you from unceded Comanche territory in Texas. Um, uh, so, yeah, we would like to welcome on today um, um, our guest, uh, F- Fabian Steinmetz. Am I pronouncing it right? I just want to make sure. I don't know either. Um, depending what country I am, I also pronounce it differently. When I'm in France, I say Fabian. If I'm in, in UK, I say Fabian. In German, I think I say Fabian. I was wondering so, your last name more so. <laughs> yes, even, even, even this one. A lot of variation, uh, variability. Uh, Steinmetz. But even if I, if I introduce myself in English, I also say Steinmetz. I'll go Steinmetz. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we'd like to introduce um, uh, 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 Fabian uh, Steinmetz. Oh, now I'm trying too hard. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> I will. Uh, so um, well, maybe uh, uh, I, I guess, like the just for the the listeners, the reasons that uh, we kind of got in touch with, uh, with with Fabian was that we um, saw um, some someone tagged us on Twitter on. Um, on a post about um, uh, a, a paper that uh, you wrote, like a concept paper on um, a crack um, on crack vapes um, and like the feasibility of it, um, you know, like what kind of harm reduction tools it would be. Uh, that's not all we're going to talk about today, because after we emailed you, um, we found out that um, you are uh you've got your hands in so many different kind of cool drug projects like very much like an old in my mind an old school drug reformer who's not you know just focused on like one kind of thing like uh has has these kind of multifaceted interests and like this overall anti-prohibitionist um uh kind of way of seeing the world um uh, but maybe you could give us like a, a, a background that you know about yourself, um, you know, what you do, what got you interested in this kind of work, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So first of all, um, um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, my, my uh, name is Fabian Steinmetz. So just saying it again, to <laughs> emphasize that I also pronounce it differently <laughs> um, every time. Uh, and yeah, I'm a, I'm, uh, by training, I'm a, I'm a toxicologist. I live in the uh, south of Germany, and I, yeah, within the last couple of years, I tried to get more involved with, um, yeah, those uh, drug policy reform groups in in Germany and Europe, and um, yeah, p- particularly as a lot of people actually come from the social sciences or from uh, uh, law, um, I'm one of the few natural scientists and to- or and toxic, particularly toxicologists, who 
um, yeah, tries to explain people that, you know, what they think about drugs are wrong, at least in Germany. Um, and, um, yeah, and that's uh, why I then, uh, you know, start to get involved with a, a lot of different groups and a lot of different tasks. And, uh, yeah, very, very interesting times. And, yeah, I'm not sure. Should I, should I also say something about the, the coca or the, the, the crack pen? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe just like, like you know, go through. We'll, we'll we'll cover you know not all of the projects, but we'll, we'll we'll cover some of them in more detail. But maybe maybe just to give folks a, a sense of um, the breadth of um, projects that you work on. I also want to note you are um, our second toxicologist on this podcast. Uh, our our first episode was with uh, with was with Ryan Marino. Um, oh uh and so we we have a disproportionate number of toxicologists um uh on this on this show so far uh, and he's slightly more on like the practice side where you're yeah. more on the research side yeah. so i feel like it's a nice representation of toxicology yeah. here um but yeah i know yeah, yeah so we, maybe maybe go through some of the projects that you've worked on because i know there yeah there's there's a lot of them <laughs> yeah, uh, i mean uh, a lot of my my type of activism is actually twittering yeah it's still you know it's still an influential topic there's this thing in germany called the wheat mop which is a, a, a very very strong um, kind of uh, a collective of uh, legalized activists and um so this is it's really strong particularly for um let, let's say a rather small sized country like germany so this wheat mop thing is is uh, quite big so um, sometimes if we do online activism, uh, we read this on the next day in the newspapers. So it's um, kind of cool. And uh, I'm sometimes introduced as the scientific um, advisory board of the Weed Mob. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you know, it's a lot of, you know, social media activism. But then also, um, you know, just writing letters and explaining things in interviews and so on. Um, in, for example, in, in different types of networks. For example, there's a, a German um, expert panel for drugs and drug policy called Schildauer Kreis. Um, that's, for example, one network I'm active in. Then um, there is um, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, or you know, Law Enforcement um, Action we Partnership, where there's the, the German uh, um, um, offshoot of it, where I'm also a member and try to support, because you know there's a lot of toxicologists working in forensics and doing very naughty stuff <laughs> and um are, are you gonna spill the gossip <laughs> <laughs> no it's just in principle i mean if you you know i'm a toxicologist who's interested in drugs so it's actually logical to apply for a job in forensics but then i would need to write uh, I, I need to analyze uh, you know a uh, pee and blood of people and write reports that they are naughty drug taking people and this is something i didn't want to so I work in, and this is the reason why I started working uh, in, in rather in research and in consulting and um, and even, you know, um, have a little professionally, a little bit less to do with drugs, but now it's getting more. <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is actually so the forensics is usually where, let's say, most toxicologists who are interested in drugs work. But, you know, they actually, you know, they support a kind of harmful approach, if you think about it. Yeah, and I also, yeah, you know, I, for certain industries, I'm completely burned. Yeah, but that's um, <laughs> that's a, another topic. But while we're talking about European organizations, I, I you know, I still need to make a shout, shout out to uh, the, uh, the organization NCOT, European Coalition for Just and Effective Drug Policies. Uh, yeah. Those nice blokes and uh, 
ladies, they have uh, also uh, elected me end of last year to their president. So um, it's also a lot of a lot of work I'm involved in, and um, and yeah, um, you know, freedom to farm is the, for example one campaign they are pushing, and I probably will t later talk on a little bit about uh, uh, the Just Coca event, um, which will be uh, yeah uh, um, mid of May, where we are advocating um, for you know prop regulation for um, Coca products. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess like, yeah, maybe we can, uh, just because our, our audience is primarily a, a North American audience, um, so folks in the, in the US and in Canada, uh, we do have folks in, in Europe and, and some in Latin America too, because we, we've brought on some Latin American guests um, in the past as well. <laughs> Um, but maybe maybe we could talk about like the you know like here we always talk about the drug supply like the you know the the poison uh, uh, you know supply just because fentanyl is is such a um, you know force in our in our in our lives uh, you know uh, I don't I don't mean that in a positive or bad way I just mean like you know like we, there's lots of overdose deaths factual yeah. Um, uh, so you know, like, I, like I know that there's no there's no fentanyl or overdose crisis or fentanyl kind of related overdose crisis in um, uh, in, in Europe, but like you know what what what's kind of going on with uh, like the illicit you know drug supply uh, there? Yeah, I, I, I generally see a, um, let's say a difference between uh, the Americas and uh, Europe with regard to drug policy that uh, with regard to uh, uh, cannabis um, and, and um, the U.S. and Canada, you know, uh, they're much further. Yeah, I mean, there isn't uh, nearly everywhere a regulated market. Uh, um, but on the other hand, for um, other substances, particularly opioids, um, I think a lot of European countries, they um, um, do a much better job in having, for example, um, opioid replacement therapies or uh, methadone. But also, um, we have several cities in ho whole Europe um, um, with um, medical practices where we also give um, proper heroin to people. And this is, of course, um, a huge harm reduction. I mean, if people will take heroin, the, their risk uh, for overdosing would be much lower than with fentanyl. And also, um, because it's you know much longer acting, it probably would also have uh, other uh, social and health benefits because um, heroin is actually very very interesting pharmacology because it's not the heroin being active but uh, uh, the, the, the six acetyl metabolite being the first compound active then it's metabolized further and then the morphine being active and then it's metabolized further and then still the the morphine six glucuronide being active you know and because of this um, you actually have a very long effect and then you know it's it you and then you actually can organize um structures where you give people um twice or three times a day um heroin and they are at least so happy that they don't have to commit a crime to get any more substances um of course there's still a lot of european countries where this is not the case and uh, usually you see that um, they have more issues with overdoses a fatal overdose uh yeah well i mean like i you know i i love i live in vancouver so there is like a, a limited um hat program here uh recently there, there there's been the start of giving folks out 
um, people's people fentanyl patches um and uh even more recently although the this clinic only has like one or two participants i think or clients currently uh giving people out like standardized fentanyl doses um uh, uh the, the thing is is that now like here at least um everyone is especially since the pandemic started everyone is so wired on fentanyl that their tolerances are through the roof. Um, I think like the average percent um, of like uh, in, in drug samples I've tested is is somewhere around like seven to eight uh, percent, like the median. Um, uh, and, and that it, like you know if people are doing like you know point so like you know eighty milligram because uh, it's never actually a full point uh, uh um 80, 80 milligram uh you know shots of this well like you know 10 7 to like 10 percent of 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 that is actually really high uh, uh um and so folks are kind of struggling with uh you know that the, the heroin they don't feel the heroin kind of uh in the, in the same way uh maybe i have i have a drug nerd question to maybe ask um i don't want i don't want to derail into this into this too deeply but i do i do have a drug nerd question for you in, in both in relation to that maybe it'll come up a bit later yeah. um, so you mean the tolerance is so high that even um um uh, pure heroin wouldn't be sufficient yeah well uh the, you know because like the so what okay well, someone someone good at math here uh, uh <laughs> one of the science people uh um okay so it fit like um you know 10 percent of oh well yeah, it's easy like 10 percent of 80 milligrams is is well like eight is those eight milligrams right um like the the you know the the medical dose of of, of fentanyl is measured in like it's like well like 120 micrograms or something like that uh so eight mil like eight milligrams is like the dose people are using and not not overdosing from yeah that's bonkers uh that, that that's an incredibly high tolerance yeah. uh um uh and, and so like the the dose of heroin that is um that's required is is also really high <laughs> so uh farmability and, and, and so the pa the paper um is called farmability and farmability the second one with ph um transforming the drug market to a health and human rights centered approach from self-cultivation to safe supply of controlled substances um so um uh, maybe you could tell us um what the impetus of this paper is like why um why you wrote it um and then may maybe uh just we can then go into like what you mean by pharma uh, farmability with an f and with a ph yeah so i mean the main purpose of, uh, to write this paper was because nothing like this was there a lot of the stuff it says is actually kind of straightforward but you know in in, in science you need to have something documented and ideally also um kind of you know validated with um, appropriate uh, data and um, and this is why we actually um, uh, built a questionnaire and asked a, an expert panel of uh, nearly 70 drug experts from uh, social and natural sciences a few questions and these we summarized and the purpose was um, or may maybe a little little background um, 
there are a lot of countries who are experimenting a little, uh, who are experimenting with different uh, policy approaches, like you know, Portugal decriminalization, U.S. states with legalization, um, you know, in Switzerland, uh, heroin assisted treatment, but no one is picking up the things from each other. You know, there's, uh, it's all a little insular solutions. There's no perfect drug policy. Uh, not, not even one single country has a good overall drug policy, and um, and uh, the and so we have to assume that the political pressure uh, from particularly from the UN, the single convention on narcotic drugs, etc., um, that this is keeping people away from progress. So we were kind of thinking um, that a lot of drugs, or the question, you know, can a lot of drugs be actually regulated without the commercial market because this is what it's all about from the the, the uh, uh, opium wars between uh, china and uh, the uh, british kingdom back then um and um uh, to you know uh, all those aspects i mean it was about uh, selling drugs to over commercially uh, giving uh, opioid uh, opioids out etc um, and the question was um is this actually working Without commercialization, can people grow their own poppy? Can people grow their own coca? Can people grow their own cannabis? And for example, Malta recently decided, uh, hey, we want to legalize, but we don't want a commercial legalization. We don't want um, um, advertisement. We don't want shops. We don't want to persuade people to consume, but we want to allow those who decide to use to um, meet in um, uh, cannabis social clubs, or they call it cannabis associations, so that adults meet and they grow and consume together cannabis. And the question was, you know, to what extent is this actually possible? Can people grow their own psychedelics? Can people grow, extract or synthesize their, their own stimulants and, and, and pathogens? And so we simply asked a lot of experts, can people do this? What is the farmability with F? So how people can farm this, you know, is this growing everywhere? Is it easy to have a little uh, a tent on your roof where you can even grow um, in, in Norway or in Sweden, uh, you can grow your, your cannabis um, or uh, whatever other plants or uh, mushroom cultivation and so on. And also, uh, particularly with um, the drugs which are uh, not plant-based or which need certain refinements, um, what's about the farmability so with a ph so how easily is it um, to for example extract ephedrine from um ephedra um and uh and you know if they want to make meth out of it um, is it a rather complex chemical procedure or is it uh, easier and there are huge differences i mean cooking meth is much easier than cooking lsd uh of course always depending on what precursors you have yeah of course if you have a uh, an LSD ester, you know, you can already take it on on your own, or you can, uh, uh, you know, make it with one step. That'd be pretty easy at that point. Yeah, and um, so this is basically uh, what we kind of were scoring: so the farmability and farmability um, of different drug classes, and those drug classes uh, are based on, um, yeah, the, the social functions of substances. So it's a uh, so there is, there, you know, I think we, we decided for um, cannabinoids, opioids, um, downers, uppers, dissociatives, uh, psychedelics, and should be, should be seven in total. Uh -huh. and, 
and and they all have you know a kind of their own social functions. So you cannot replace a stimulant with a psychedelic. Or uh, so if someone, so if you for example uh, allow psychedelic social clubs where people um, grow their own cacti and mushrooms together and create their own uh, plant extracts, uh, brew their ayahuasca together. Um, there might, this might be an alternative, for example, for 2CB and LSD, you know, I mean, I'm in favor mm -hmm. of having um, also a little um, um, supply opportunity for those uh, substances. But, you know, it's still checking, you know, are those things viable? Can people create this on their own? Um, and people who are, I mean, maybe not the, not the real psychonaut nerds, but for the majority of people who just want to have some psychedelic experience, actually it doesn't really matter for them if it's a synthetic or a plant or mushroom-based one. So, and this is how we then looked in all those classes. And then basically we said, people who want this type of experience, they will have access to a substance based on a community grown and extracted um, drug. And for, um, but, um, um, and, and people will, find something there uh, but this is actually the reason why we have to distinguish within those classes because uh, people will not take uh, then let's say if there's a demand for stimulants people will not just take psychedelics instead because they want to take stimulants for their sports they want to take stimulants maybe for uh, their sexual performance they want to take stimulants uh, for uh, working a night shift or whatever yeah so you know other drug classes are then not relevant um, so this is what, what I mean with a social function of a substance. Yeah, and this we analyze basically for all those uh, seven different uh, yeah, uh, drug classes. Mm -hmm. One of the things I liked most from your paper is how you kind of laid out a figure, like a graph of your degrees of regulation versus harm to health and society. And you kind of pointed out how there's, you know, there's a kind of a parabola, I guess, where there's, you know, greatest harm, both in an unregulated illegal environment, kind of like how we understand and experience today. And then on the opposite end, an unregulated legal market would have a similar effect. The point being regulation versus legality being the more significant factor there. I thought that was a really, um, I thought that was a very canny kind of way to illustrate it. And a really great point that we don't think about too much. Yeah, but I have to give you know credits away. I mean, this is uh, this graph in principle is from from the eighties from uh, Dr. John Marks uh, from um, yeah a physician from the UK who gave mm -hmm. uh, uh, cocaine and heroin to people uh, um, in as a, as a as a form of treatment. You know, um, so this, and I think he called it they had a paradox of provision. There are a lot of different versions of this graph right now. Recently, I've seen this in a in a German TV show, and I was so happy um, to to see this <laughs> and you know. Uh, it's amazing this, this, how little we hear about this in the in North America. It's just this graph. <laughs> yeah, this gets used all the time. I mean, I, I've seen it, I've seen this graph so many places. I, I I'm a little sympathetic to um, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Julian Buchanan's version it, which 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 has the unregulated legal market as like it's still high like it but it, it's it's lower than the uh, uh, unregulated illegal market um mm -hmm. just because like so many so like there are still a, a lot of harms that would be caused by an unregulated legal market but that like they're probably they're probably still not as high as the no pun intended um as the <laughs> um un unregulated illegal market um 
Uh, you know, there's it's still we, we still want to avoid them. I they're testing fire alarms in my building. This is just going to be the day. By the way, I had a, I had actually an argument with Julian about that. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. first of all, I mean, he he actually, I mean, I, I really love his work. I mean, it's, what he does is very important. I'm a big fan. Yeah, don't get me wrong, but uh, um, he kind of criticized every time I, I used his U shape and uh, replaced it with his version. And I, I see his points um, um, totally. Um, but this is also uh, something to do because uh, um, we are nowadays used that there are, for example, bands for um, tobacco advertisement. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there has been a time where children were smoking and there was a time when children had been introduced to smoking by chocolate cigarettes. Yeah, there, um, Where cartoon heroes were smoking. Yeah, So <laughs> they, and if you make the whole word smoke, and it was like that 100 years ago, if you make the whole word smoke, I mean, tobacco kills much more people than, than heroin. Um, and I think... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure with the opioid crisis, but I'm, I'm, but I would still guess that that smoking kills more people. I mean, I'm, I might be wrong. In Europe, it's definitely the case. Uh, it's, uh, so this is what we sometimes forget is that uh, with um, tobacco and alcohol, we already went down a little bit because there are regulations in place, and also those regulations where we never talk about. And this is everything which has to do with quality control. So even those tobacco products and those alcohol products, yeah, uh, you know. Um, a, a boost distilled uh, on the black market can contain methanol and make you blind. You know, the the um, legal alcohol is does not have much uh, methanol. So this is you know quality control. Also, in the, in the past, people put a lot of other um, chemicals into tobacco to make uh, um, uh, nicotine being um, uh, have, having a higher bioavailability and so also creating a higher um, yeah substance use disorder likelihood. You know. Um, but like one of the things, yeah, I, I was curious about um, was in terms of um, the groupings, um, you know, grouping, you know, like o like opioids, you know, includes everything from fentanyl, carfentanyl, I said, I said, <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I got it. it. <laughs> uh, uh, um, to heroin, morphine, hydrocodone. Um, you know, um, or psychedelics is anything from 25i and and bomb to LSD. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, I was just kind of curious in terms of, uh, you know, like, like how, if, if you think that these groupings in terms of um, farm farmability with an F <laughs> uh, um, or of farmability, you know, if they're, if, like there's something like you'd like to develop up more or if like you think that they they're still workable kind of as they are yeah i mean there are huge potency differences between those substances in a group and this is and it's yeah so it's it's, it's a bit difficult i mean if we if we think about someone with a fentanyl tolerance um it, i i don't think that kratom will be a viable option for them um Maybe, um, you know, I mean, it, maybe to just re reduce some uh, of the withdrawal effects. But, um, yeah, I think we, we, we have to be clear that there are, yeah, there are some big potency differences. And with a few exceptions, um, often the, um, yeah, the, the plant materials, and particularly the non-extracted plant materials, are rather on the, on the low potency side. Um, and, uh, and of, yeah, 
particularly I think in the stimulants group, we see a lot of substances where we um, people will not have the same experience with uh, an ephedra tea as with methamphetamine. Um, so this is probably a bit um, difficult to address, but this is on the other hand, which, which then has been scored also only in, uh, as a, let's say, um, uh, what is it, probably moderately difficult or whatever. Um, so this is actually where we will probably need some um, supply. And we know, you know, from um, um, different pharmaceutical companies that they actually don't care that much about um, um, individuals' health and more about money, you know. And um, this is actually where um, um, contingents come into play. So that you actually, that not a pharmaceutical company um, does their own sales rep work and just try to sell as much drugs uh, as possible, but that um, the government and uh, particularly the health ministry of that government tells them, hey, we need uh, so much methamphetamine uh, because we have so many users and we want to give them safe supply. Um, so this is also what we um, try, you know, because they are actually, I mean, apart from cannabis and psychedelics, uh, the results were actually um, very, um, yeah, let's say moderately negative. So farmability, uh, particularly the one with pH, was actually considered quite low. Um, but, uh, so, and, uh, and, and I mean, they, I also think that they are to a certain extent right. Um, um, particularly, if we also consider things like quality. I mean, we don't want that people uh, cook their own substances. And uh, if they are, don't have the sufficient know-how, there are a lot of toxic impurities in there. I mean, we want to avoid this. And this is where um, safe supply comes in there. I mean, social clubs for those people who want to cultivate, and it doesn't matter if uh, coca, poppy, cut, uh, mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca, whatever, you know, and of course cannabis, um, you know, they should all go for it. But if they, if this is not sufficient, they need safe supply. And with our paper, pharmaceutical companies can actually go to governments, to their health ministry and say, hey, those independent dudes uh, uh, actually say that there is this and this demand for stimulants and that it is demand for opioids which cannot be really covered so if you tell us how much we are happy to you know of course they will earn money with it but uh, uh, but only within those limits and not with a let's say this yeah uh, with you know like like uh, things have been going with uh, oxycodone um yeah and I, I guess like one of my thoughts too i i, I know this is not huge in the u.s but in canada like um generics like also like rule the day too and so like you don't you don't need it you know like th these drugs are for the most part you know past their patent um date um you know like they for, even for like the, the the ketamine um uh assisted treatment they literally had to go and patent the s like isomer um of it <laughs> um you know so that they could have something that would you know be patentable but like mo most of these drugs are you know not um are not patented and so like you know like if we want to talk about you know not having you know incredibly exploitative um you know, companies that are, are involved in doing mass marketing, well, like the, you know, generics market, uh, you know, is one potential avenue that I, I don't think folks have like, you know, really kind of thought through or, or looked kind of uh, to explore. Um, I really like the idea. That's uh, it's, it's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, just giving them the licenses for that. And, and also, you know, you can 
you can steer it that it's only possible with i mean it's anyway steered with licenses um usually in most countries with uh, um you know people have to apply for um to give it uh, put the drug on the market with the fda and they want clinical studies and so on and to just say okay let's stick to the companies um yeah i don't know about generic brands in uh, in, in the us um, or in canada um if they do advertisement on their own and how much um because in in germany they still do probably a little bit less than the than the, than the big sellers but um we don't have drug advertisements really here yeah we don't have Drug you guys have drug advertisements. Well, <laughs> we don't have drug advertisements for generics, but yeah, I completely agree. But just because that loses the the like the financial profitability angle, we have tremendous advertising for for patented drugs constantly. Yeah, and they're ridiculous. It, it's wild. Be, like I'm shown ads all the time, like heavy rotation ads for things that I do not have. They're like, do you have rheumatoid arthritis? I'm like, I do not, but that's not going to stop them from showing me six ads that are like every hour that I'm trying to watch something. It's um, to your doctor about. Oh, it's so weird. As soon as I realized that like, we're essentially the only country in the world that allows that <laughs> anyway, but uh. yeah. It's a it's a very different kind of social context there. Uh, so I I was wondering so like you know it, it, every time I talk, um, <laughs> I, I I was I was wondering um, I'm just gonna try and talk through if I can. Um, I, I, in terms of the opioids, so one of the the like the activist um su you know suggestions um here um has been for folks to you know start growing um growing their own poppies for the you know to make into um into heroin um and uh you know we also have a, a group called uh what's it called shoot fair price pharma oh. um okay. which is which is oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. importing yeah. um currently i don't i don't think they can locally manufacture it there's there's so many oh, there's a bunch of un single convention issues with doing that kind of stuff that we don't have i don't have the the knowledge to really jump into now um but they, they, you know so there there's this kind of movement and here the uh, on your um your paper opioids are are kind of listed as like as difficult um and i was wondering maybe if like you like you know had a sense of like you know what might make it so you know challenging so um, if you think about um, um, the traditional way um, of how um, opium or, or morphine or heroin is, is produced, it's usually a very labor-intensive work. Um, so, you know, you, uh, you slice those, those uh, poppy capsules and collect it. Uh, so you have to go, go I mean, it's, it's, it's really tedious. Um, but um, I, if you think about... Um, uh, processes like in in Turkey with um, extracting the the whole plant, um, I think this you know this can actually be um, be, be uh, much easier done. So I'm not sure if people kind of considered this. And keep in mind, I mean there were also substances like fentanyl fentanyl in the group. So this is of course if you don't have any easy peasy precursors, that's uh, of course difficult to synthesize. Um, but if you want a good quality, I mean I, I've seen. I've seen uh, some synthesis in Mexico, which um, looked 
reasonably easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, I think if you, if, I think a social club for opium smokers, I think this is something feasible. I mean, with cannabis, you it's uh, one indoor facility might be enough. For poppy, you need a field outside because you just need a greater area. Uh, so for recreational opium use, I think it's possible for people with a tolerance. Um, this might be a bit difficult. Um, on the other hand, with uh, the if you make heroin out of it, so you uh, so. Um, so I think if you if you start with the capsules, it's probably one or two extraction steps uh, until you have a, a morphine base, and if you and then the acetylation is if you, is sufficiently easy. Um, um, I think you know if think about you know like in a, in a cannabis social club, you know you 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 uh, you grow your cannabis, and then um, and once a month um, or every every three months. Uh, a chemical engineer comes over and helps you to do the extraction for you, so you don't blow yourself. Um, 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 so you, you know, working with explosives and so on. So something like this could be happening. So people actually um, cultivating together poppy in this club, or um, um, having some farmers doing this work, and you know, sold by a membership fee, um, which you know can also be addressed by um, uh, health insurance, for example, um, or social insurance. And um, and then um, you know having then uh, yeah in certain intervals uh, um, some chemical engineers who then doing those two steps so basically the, the extraction part and the the, um, the acetylation part yeah and then you could end up with some um, um, moderate to high quality heroin um, and um, and and to be honest I think the the typical impurities in heroin are not a big issue I mean with synthetic opioids that sometimes can be very nasty impurities. But on the other hand, then usually the, the dose is so low that they are not very toxic. But um, yeah, I think this is um, with with heroin, this, this should be feasible. But you know, as you can hear, it's a lot of organizational work and concept work. So someone needs to pilot this and so on. And um, it's difficult to say. Um, and it also you know depends on the in involvement and how much money such a club has and so on. But yeah, there's no reason why people are not uh, producing um, their own supply and particularly people who want to use opium or heroin uh, just as a pain medication. So for those, it definitely would work. So being independent from, 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 the, from the pharmaceutical industry. So having uh, particularly people who actually try to have their uh, opioid intake rather low and, um, and, you know, they try to take cannabis and NSIDs as much as possible for their pain and only those pain peaks uh, or a quite low dose, they try to um, actually use opioids because, you know, you don't want to have tolerance and you don't want to have withdrawals if you stop taking. Um, but yeah, it's still, yeah, I, I haven't done the maths on it, but um, at least for a certain population, it would work, I would say. I also like to how, like you've been talking about the social club aspects and the idea of it working that way. And I just kind of love also, Alex, I bet you do too, kind of from an anthropological perspective, how the idea of using drugs together and supporting one another and this kind of co-op model and everyone helps contribute to this collective bounty is also very, I mean, it's very harm reduction informed at its base, but it also reflects kind of the importance of, I don't know, just the social connectedness of it all and how that feels so foreign, I think, especially at least to 
folks in the US, because if you use illegal substances in like this very heavily prohibited environment, you probably use them alone. Or if you use them with other people, it's under great, you know, concealment and you don't tell other people about it. But one of the things that I like you, what you're describing makes a lot of sense, both from a manufacturing and chemical perspective and a kind of a horticulture perspective to a certain extent, like when you're talking about growing poppies, but also to just kind of this greater embracing of the health benefits and potential health benefits and just a completely different kind of social and like almost psychological perspective to substance use and what it can end up giving to a community. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, you have the same, you have the same positive effects from a, a safe consumption side, mm-hmm. but also because it's a kind of self-organized organization. And, you know, we, we see how much people with, um, how do you say, uh, with, um, 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 ex- experienced knowledge. No, how, how you say, um, like lived experience. So- Lift, lift experience. Thank you, Ron. Um, um, I, th- I think people can actually uh, make much more out of it. And then also, if you have this connection to the plant and to to the nature around it, yeah, I think some people very often forget that it's a, a beautiful uh, flower, and mm-hmm. uh, and that you uh, and you know at the end you will also have seeds, so you can also uh, do some bakery with it. I mean, it sounds ridiculous for a lot of people, but I think actually this is something still bonding. If you if you then once in a year have a a, a poppy cake festival or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and it probably. doesn't matter how hooked who uh, he or she is. Um, I think overall, um, if you give people the possibility to to identify with the with the culture, um, I think this can create uh, actually take a lot of uh, uh, harm away. Absolutely, well said. I, I was thinking like uh, I, I I I I really love it too, and I, I really love the co-op idea, especially like in our, our social club just. Like, I, I think that, like, one of the things that, like, you know, drug prohibition has done is that it's created, um, it, it, it's intentionally bro- breaks social cohesion and social togetherness of, of people who use drugs, um, you know, and also to an extent people who, um, you know, sell drugs because, uh, you know, the, the cops are, you know, at your, your door and like, you don't, you never know who you can trust because like, you know, might be like an undercover cop or, you know, uh, you might go to, you know, prison with like the, you know, because of, you know, all of this, uh, you know, you know, breaking up of, of, of gangs and stuff like that that causes like a ripple effect. So instead of having like one organized gang that, you know, made their, fentanyl at let's say you know six percent um and it was consistently you know six percent plus or minus like you know a little bit um you know you break you break up that group and then all of a sudden you have five different groups and maybe they all have their own standard for you know what the percentage is but you know now now they're kind of all you know it the prohibition forces people to actually be in uh competition and intention with each other um which is why the which like a social club model one like you know gives you the kind of autonomy to be able to do to work with other people because it's a collaborative effort you know one person cannot grow uh uh you know overgrow kind of uh the 
you know, or grow sorry enough poppies so that you know everyone's got like a, a enough. Um, you know, like even a, a one person could probably not sit like on their own synthesize enough, you know, fentanyl and do it in a safe way. Uh so that you know uh uh there's like you know a, a enough for folks. And so like the uh things like the the cannabis club, you know, the social club kind of model and co-op model, um, uh, you know, I think are uh are ways of like reconnecting that social solidarity i i think drug user unions also kind of do the do the same thing uh as well yeah um, and i mean we all know uh, uh, uh people who use drugs and and also the ones with a substance use disorder they 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 are willing to work i mean it's we can also see this uh, uh yeah, also by the crimes which are uh, done or or sex work, etc. I mean, they uh, and if you then you know can give them a more purposeful work, which is also, I mean, it's still they, those people enjoy those substances and and giving them a job associated with those substances. Um, I think it's uh, yeah. So I just I I don't like this uh, this, this this stereotype of uh, uh, people who just want to get high and not willing to work. I mean. They, I, I would say that most people, particularly living on the street, they do much more work than people uh, on, in, in the in the typical office jobs. I mean, if you, if you, it's the the thing is you just have to count all the things they do. You know, all the networking. I mean, in business, everyone talks about networking and so on. How much networking does a person need uh, who uh, needs to do for their own drug supply? So, and this is actually, I mean, there is this energy, yeah, and uh, I think this just needs to be channeled and. Um, and I think we neither need uh, or hardly need um, any any uh, criminal organizations, whether they call themselves a pharmaceutical company or um, they call themselves uh, the, the Zetas or the whatever cartel is called. Yeah, like every drug user activist that I've I've worked with, or I've you know either as as part of my my my, my job, um, you know, helping them folks design like their own research projects, um, or um, uh, doing activism as CSSTP, everyone's got like 20 hats, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and they're like, they're, you know, it's like, oh, like I've got like, you know, meetings with the government today. And then like, I've got, you know, this side project I've been working on to make sure that more people get like naloxone. And then I'm starting up my own overdose prevention service. You're just like, whoa, like, uh, <laughs> like I thought I was busy. Um, uh, there, you know, there, there's just so much, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, there's just so much labor that uh, folks do, and, and and a lot of it's taking care, kind of of of, of each other, um, because the you know the government won't. <laughs> um, I, I I want to just move move on. Uh, uh, Fabian, you've been working on a uh, a project on like on kind of grow your own movement stuff um but um in terms of uh ethical coca uh i can't remember what the website's called yeah that's e easy to remember just coca, oh, just coca. okay or the Spanish version would be uh solo coca all right yeah um so right. and yeah this is basically a, an event we uh, um uh, so it's a digital workshop um, where we talk about different aspects of health, science, and people with regard to coca. So the, um, it's um, four panels. Um, 
one about um, safety and also medical use, then one about um, uh, nutrition and also innovation in the in the food engineering area, um, particularly you know with, with um, guests from um, uh, legalized countries uh, like uh, Peru and Bolivia. Um, but then also about uh, um, sustainable coca cultivation. Um, I, I ideally, without helicopters, um, trying to eradicate things. Um, and then also um, the regulatory changes. I mean, if we want, what, what, what do we need to do that uh, coca can be a normal staple food, you know, like tea and coffee? Because it's, it's nothing else than that. I mean, if you extract coffee from uh, coffee beans and uh, snort the pure coffee through your nose, you will also have a, a quite intensive stimulant effect. Um, so what makes, it, uh, what makes it so different? Why can we just on the European market, why can I not just in the supermarket uh, buy coca tea or coca candy with, you know, marginal cocaine levels, which yeah, will stimulate me less than a cup of coffee? So that's uh, the basic question. And we also, we want to uh, inspire um, the upcoming WHA, so the meeting of the WHO, um, where they also will talk about traditional medicine. And we, yeah, we want to, with this workshop, just before this meeting, we want to create some impact and yeah, also talk to some uh, folks who are um, on the meeting. Yeah, so um, what is this? Um, what, oh, so we've covered this a bit in, in, in the podcast previously, but I, one of the questions I had in terms of that is that like coca is like one of those plants that is like, like, I mean, you can, you can grow it in, in small amounts. Um, but, uh, in terms of actually growing it, the, the only place where it's, you know, feasible really to grow is in, um, uh, is in Latin America is in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, and there's one more. <laughs> I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Um, and, and so I, I wonder in terms of like, you know, thinking about that, like, you know, what sort of, you know, collaborations or, you know, ways of thinking are you kind of, you know, imagining when it comes to, you know, procuring coca and these, you know, coca uh, products? Yeah, so I still think here of um, because you know it's a very traditional plant, uh, um, and we we still think about that um, that you know local communities who um, produce coca tea and for you know for, for whom it's a holy plant that they can um, you know that that the export ban is lifted. So that's the, that's the, the main thinking. A long term, it's likely that also you know coca will be also grown in other regions. Um, I think one reason why it's uh, hardly grown anywhere else in South America is probably due to um, um, the seeds um, um, germinate only when they are fresh, so only a few days. Um, of course, um, it, it, it does not grow in every region. Yeah, it's uh, it's not like hemp where you find a strain for nearly every area in the world. Uh, but I, I still think it's uh, you know it's a combination of provision and that the seeds are only you know when they only germinate if they're fresh. That's so probably. Uh, but we actually, you know, we want that um, they earn the money with. And actually, you know, because they have a monopoly, kind of, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, France has their champagne. And so if they sell sparkling wine from this area, you know, it's a special thing. And they can charge a little bit more. We want the same for those communities. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I, I will just note that. So um, Indonesia, uh, back when it was owned by the Dutch, um, actually had the second largest um, coca um, uh, growing, uh, like they had the second largest uh, coca like plantation. Uh, we could think of it as, um, and it, and the United States also tried it in Hawaii, um, but in both projects failed um, after like a certain period of time. Like they weren't feasible in Hawaii. They actually created. Um, they ended up creating a superbug that um, would target um, coca that like like basically decimated all of their their coca plants like an insect um, i'm not sure what happened in indonesia but my understanding was like that the growing conditions were like good but like just not long-term sustainably good um and so it actually is like kind of hard to um to grow other places uh but yeah i mean i i love that idea too um i i'm, I'm happy that you, it was one question i had because i, I hadn't seen anything on, on the site um you know ways of you know collaborating with you know the traditional um uh, you know uh people who are in relation kind of uh to this plant um i think that that's all kind of wonderful uh was there anything else you wanted to just talk, to touch on, on on that on that project um fabian um, no i mean it's it's only just for your notes that as a uh, um, lot of south american involvement so uh, so there's a lot of a strong connection uh, um, between um, ANCOT, but also um, uh, fair trade cocaine. They're called. Uh, um, they have a, a lot of connections to uh, South American um, um, coca producers and coca activists. So I think uh, um, over three quarters of the speakers um, um, are uh, from South America. That's so, rules. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have to moderate one session, and I need a door manager. So it's. Uh, not that cool for me, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm, it's, I, I think it's more important that uh, they have a voice there. That's uh, yeah. that's great. Um, so, uh, can you tell us? Uh, so, going from Coco, let's let's talk about um, you know the the reason the reason we we've been introduced to each other. Um, let's talk about crack vapes. Um, so uh, can you maybe give us a bit of a background on this paper and how it was, um, how it was, you know, made, what inspired you to write it? Maybe some background. Yeah. So from, so with regard to, uh, let's say our, our standard narcotics, um, traditionally in, in, in Germany, the, the substances uh, with the most problematic use uh, uh, is, is heroin and uh, um, crack cocaine. So, um, of course, you know, from the, the, the ones uh, from the illegal narcotics. And for heroin, there are quite good models um, in, in Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, uh, um, from um, some drugs which are more for, you know, getting rid of uh, withdrawal. But also, you know, we have some models where we give actually heroin to people. So um, heroin-assisted treatment in, in Switzerland, in, in Germany, Netherlands, Denmark, and so on. But... Um, um, I was yes for a long time a long long time I was thinking about um, how can something similar be done with crack cocaine um, because we know uh, people you know there's a, a similar lifestyle um, of, of people who um, um, yeah try to get a, lo a lot of crack stones uh, and uh, 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 committing crime and so on and also harming their health so how can we get them some less harmful drug 
And one issue was always the kind of thing. So even if we would provide them some cocaine base to vape or whatever, um, the issue would then be uh, while with heroin, people go two or three times uh, to, um, to um, uh, such a supplying physician. Uh, with crack cocaine, you know, people could go there every 10 minutes because the effects are so short lasting. So, and then the idea came with uh, an e-cigarette so that you basically, you get, uh, uh, for example, a daily fill and then you can actually, you dose yourself multiple times per day and also with some overdose limits. Um, for example, um, that, um, you know, based on half-life calculations that the machine, for example, does certain breaks, you know, where you, um, that, or for example, um, also based on the formulation. So the, it's likely that you have to inhale more volume to get the same effect. And it's possible that you actually never um, um, get such high plasma levels as with, uh, uh, with smoking crack. I mean, this is something which only can be identified with um, clinical studies. Um, but, you know, but, you know there, this is the stuff I mentioned in this you know, theoretical paper, um, which can be addressed with an, with an uh, electronic um, device. And yeah, so this is the basic idea. So um, that people can get their uh, daily supply of uh, inhalable cocaine base. And then also, um, of course, um, um, the, the most harmful potential um, uh, with regard to pulmonary health is uh, that you very often, depending on the pipe type and the material, you very often inhale very hot salt particles, very tiny, you know, nano-micro scale, and they do a lot of little damages in your lung. And um, But over long term, they contribute to lung fibrosis, increasing your lung cancer risk, but also, you know, COPD or, you know, everything which is what's associated with the quotation marks, the, the crack lung. And um, by having a, a properly vaped um, liquid, uh, you actually don't have this lung harm anymore. So the OD risk is lower, and uh, the lung harm is, is uh, significantly lower. And additionally, you also you know, have an alternative for the black market. And if you can get this prescribed medically, you also would have the advantage um, of, you know, people don't have to commit crime to, to, to uh, finance their drugs. And they also, because they need to go to a physician, they can also address comorbidities. So it's very often that they have issues with sleeping, and that's why they drink a lot or take uh, take certain downers afterwards. Or they, for example, you know, they might have an infection or whatever, or um, uh, you know, or whatever health uh, issue they might have, they actually can address it because you know the stigma with uh, with uh, people who use drugs and uh, the medical system. But by actually getting people to hey. You can actually get this for free there and it's good quality. You know, you can get the people there and then automatically um, medical staff will see, hey, they are normal people, nice you know, nice fellows and so on. So they actually, lose, this will lose some stigma. And on the other hand, they see, hey, um, these are just people there. So they're always so angry because they want to help us and they realize that they cannot help us in the prohib prohibitive system. So we this will also long-term um, um, decrease a lot of stigma. So. It's not a magic bullet, um, or uh, um, okay. I don't. We don't. We don't. I. I. I don't like. Uh, th there's no silver bullet language allowed on this podcast. Justin Trudeau <laughs> has ruined it for me. Like decriminalization <laughs> is not a silver bullet. 
where Canada's not Portugal. Decriminalization is not a silver bullet. I he said it at least five like five times in his first four year term as prime minister. So it's, it's no. okay. We 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 know we don't. No one's there's no like we're not. It's a prohibition's not a werewolf, as as Karen Ward says. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, no, and uh, I mean, like, you know, like, yeah, it, you could even like, you know, because like, I, I, I don't have a pod vape on me right now, but like, you know, you, you could, you could also just have pods that had like, you know, like these, you know, daily d- dispenses or something like that. I get like, I guess, are there any like, uh, like barriers or, or, or it was the concept paper kind of part of like, you know, what you were saying before, like you just get the idea out into the, into the academy and then see if someone else can kind of run with it. Yeah. It still hasn't been cited. That's a bad sign. It has been read a lot. It also gave me some media attention, but uh, hasn't been uh, uh, cited. But I, I know some scientists picked it up. But if you think about how much um, effort it takes to develop a medical device, yeah, this is nothing uh, people can do in their free time. And particularly, um, you know, you need to have a, a proper lab and probably, I don't know, hundred thousands or a million euros or whatever. It's actually quite intensive because, you know, you have to have quite similar clinical studies as in the, in the pharmaceutical field. And, um, and on the other hand, it's also um, um, even experiment with, let's say, to, to develop a prototype. I already, uh, I've presented multiple posters on prototyping what substances they can use instead because legal cocaine is uh, over 10 times more expensive than illegal cocaine um, because uh, probably due to the paperwork and they're getting uh, ripped off <laughs> oh, sorry because uh, like like turning i mean turning cocaine hydrochloride into crack is something like a you know 14 year old kid like it's not i'm not saying 14 year old should do crack i'm just saying like the 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 chemistry that chemistry aspect of it is not very complicated um i i i i imagine like what we'll see you'll probably see you know thing in the future as like uh people and you know experimenting and trying to to figure out a way to to do it my my first thought was like you know like turn like was like the the variables that are kind of you know of the the challenge here are are things like um uh the filter um and then also what temperature um it takes for um cocaine free base to uh vaporize um in a propylene glycol vegetable glycerin solution which would have to be done experimentally i i guess because like those things are like what were my first thoughts i'm like oh that's gonna be hard yeah. So the formulation science. Um, so I think um, we probably are very close to a saturated solution. And this is why probably uh, the formulation experts really need to put some effort that this, you know, in the, you know, this product would be then stored somewhere, uh, you know, temperature might uh, increase, decrease, and you don't want that it crystallizes out at some point and precipitates and so on. So keeping this actually stable and steady actually takes a lot of effort. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, worst case, you actually need to, um, 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 if it's not potent enough, to actually um, take a more potent uh, um, um, cocaine analog. Um, this is also something, uh, an option which, which could be there. Um, yeah, it's, 
And then, yeah, and if you're vaping, you also want to make sure that there are no uh, pyrolysis products which have any nasty properties. Um, um, I mean, there's still a few few things they are still debatable about those Evali cases. Um, but I think there's still a lot of scientists who believe that it's a pyrolysis product from the vitamin E acetate. And this, for example, is someone nobody has expected. Nobody has... Uh, um, has expected uh, that uh, the substance when when vaped will be you know that aggressive you know and you know it's still there are some reasons to doubt that it's the mechanism but it's still the most plausible thing I've heard so far yeah. so this and but yeah you cannot imagine how much documentary work it's you know just to apply for a clinical study I don't I I don't want to know how expensive yeah um. Well, I, I see like I, I, I think it'll, it'll end up probably just being, you know, some harm reductionists who go and, uh, you know, try and, and, and design this. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the science because that's not my background, but um, yeah, um, I, I guess like how, how do you think that this like crack vape kind of fits into your like overall, you know, philosophy of of you know being a, dr a drug reform activist I, um, <laughs> or what is your kind of philosophy like philosophy because i i feel like you know folks here are like you know they're really focused on safe supply or they're like you know really focused on uh and and, and like the, the the nightlife like drug people are different from the not entirely but like you know they're they're kind of they end up being kind of like distinct kind of communities like we don't i don't normally see a lot of folks who are you know who are advocating you know for you know maltese cannabis reform kratom reform um you know coca reform and also like you know like obviously other than steve steve rolls uh from transform you know who are you know pushing for like also kind of the these synthetic drug reforms like i like i i just i'm just like you know the what the underlying kind of you know philosophy of like what uh, what your drug future looks like um you know yeah. what is that yeah. i mean the, the, there's the the aim i'm pushing right now and this is basically grabbing everything what's there so pushing drug checking pushing a safe consumption side but also cannabis legalization yeah. psychedelic access for therapies but also psychedelic access for people who want to use them for other reasons so um, at the Schildauer Kreis, this, this German expert panel, we, for example, you know, when everyone is talking about uh, how to legalize cannabis, we, uh, um, we wrote a document on how we want uh, MDMA to be legalized. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think I, I, I sometimes um, um, try to explain things uh, with, uh, which is very close to actually Steve Rolls um, uh, approach to things. Uh, I think for now we need a tiered approach. There will be um, certain drugs which you know which go like food. I mean, uh, I think coca leaf would be an example. There will be drugs where I think they they can be easily sold in a in a moderately liberal way uh, in the social context, like cannabis. You know, you can go in a club, you can buy a few grams of this and that, and then you sit there with your friends and you share. Hey, try this, try that. Yeah, and then for example, you have you have um, substances. Where I don't like the same behavior, for example, um, ecstasy and, and 
Yeah, I, I don't want a bowl like Smarties on a table and hey, try one, try one. No, I, I want this then to be sold in a from an uh, from a more or less expert. So either a social scientist who um, has um, some uh, you know some some uh, have some pharmaceutical training or a pharmacist with some um, social science ex um, experience and also someone with lived experience who has been training in both. Um, I want that so people then sell those substances like, for example, uh, speed, cocaine, ketamine, LSD, and so on, to take uh, to sell them more um, after an individual communication and make them a a aware of the individual risk and so on. And hey, you know your body weight, okay? Don't take more than this. Do you have experience with this? Hey, do you know that you cannot combine this with this and that? And okay, yeah, I'm happy to sell this for you for the whole festival. But keep in mind, if you take all this at once. I won't see you again, and I don't want to lo lose you as a customer. Um, and then, of course, also the, the third one, and this is where, for example, see uh, smokable cocaine forms. Yeah, again, I don't mind if someone buys cocaine and gets advice how to make uh, to freebase it. Yeah, if they want to, sure, this should be definitely decriminalized, and they should get access to their cocaine hydrochloride. Um, but for those people um, who have a, um, a strong substance use disorder. Um, I think um, there we need a safe supply. So I still think that um, it would be good to involve a physician at some point, although mostly social workers do a better job. Um, but um, yeah, I still like, like them that, you know, I, I, that's also the difference. I want that the cocaine is paid by the state for those persons who have this issue. And the person who likes cocaine for partying, they should, uh, they should buy it uh, with their own money. So that's that's for example one one difference I, I see there. So it should so physicians should prescribe opioids and stimulants to people um, who take them anyway, and particularly you know those people who uh, have some let's say yeah problematic use. It's sometimes difficult to find the right words, but I, I think you know what I mean. So this is so this is my three or four tiered kind of approach. So having more the the food and social things, yeah, like, you know, coca tea um, and coffee being on a supermarket and the, the first tier, which is more, you know, like alcohol and um, cannabis and then the, the substances, which, um, you know, you still want to have individual consultation and advice and support and, uh, and also drug checking services if it's from the black market, yeah, because the black market, we want to reduce it to a sensible amount, but uh, it will never disappear. It also, I mean, there's also a black market with tobacco products in, in Germany, for example, because of due to the tax increases. And then the, uh, the, the third tier or the fourth, depending on how you count, will be that people who have health issues and take those substances, that it's considered as their medicine. And then they get it, uh, yeah, they basically get self-supply, safe supply, but also other medical services. They should be part, like every other citizen as well. And so if they have... Uh, um, a, a, a broken bone or if they have an inflammation or a cold or whatever uh, or HIV, they should get the same or hepatitis uh, um, they should get the same support as every other citizen too so that's my current aim and my long term aim is probably just uh, um, that people get so educated that we don't need those rules and strategies anymore that's my, my long term aim that uh, that. Yeah, I always say for fun that uh, that uh, 
if I have a strong migraine and access to heroin, I would use heroin. Yeah, but I would take it orally and I would take a moderately low dose and probably only you know once a month when I have a migraine. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's not doing it for me when I have a migraine. So uh, yeah, so so Fabian, I guess I'm wondering, you know, after after um, all we've talked, you know, what would be kind of your ideal drug role? Like, what 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 are you imagining here? I mean, the one thing is the changes for now. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the long-term vision. Um, for now, I think there's no way around, um, yeah, some, let's say, a tiered approach. That means, let's say, some more loose regulations for um, cannabis and uh, alcohol. And then, let's say, some, some a bit tougher regulation and some even a prescription for, uh, let's say, uh, stronger opioids and uh, stimulants. Um, I think... I think it's possible for most regions in the world to have a four-tiered approach. Um, coffee, coca leaves, uh, and stuff like that, like in, in food stores, then alcohol, cannabis, etc. in, you know, uh, social use facilities, um, um, you know, like coffee shops, um, dispensaries, um, cannabis social clubs, pubs in general. Um, then second tier where um you still get the drugs you want but you get you know rather individual doses and a lot of um education and support so if you so for example before you go to a festival uh, you go somewhere to pick up your uh, um your, your lsd trip and your uh, and some mdma and speed or whatever but you know um still you know designed for yourself so they won't give you um, um, 10 pills and say have fun but rather hey your body weight is this and that how often do you plan within this extended weekend to use this keep in mind not to combine you know a bit more you know the individual kind of um, giving it to people um, and then the fourth tier would be something like um, um, prescription uh, so for example if someone is just not happy with the amount of speed they get they should just get uh, amphetamine or methamphetamine or whatever prescribed but of course physicians should or social workers whoever will prescribe actually not a big fan of uh, that just doctors can prescribe drugs i think social workers and pharmacists should um, prescribe too um, um, but yeah, I still think that, you know, some professional um, should be involved there. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is what I, you know, ideally would start tomorrow. And then for the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years until we have an appropriate education and maybe also have, uh, you know, overcome uh, poverty and discrimination and this kind of stuff. And then at some point, I think people should um, just choose and, and freely decide what they use for what purpose and so ever. And you simply help as, you know, as a state with supportive tools, you know, education, harm reduction advice and yeah, quality control. Yeah. I, I, I really, I, I really like the idea of, um, of having, uh, uh, a, a new kind of professional class of folks. Uh, this, I, I picked this up from, one of the activists in Vancouver, Karen Ward, um, and, and and you know, like for I guess like, um, uh, one one of the challenges here is that you know we have like this you know kind of sh short twentieth century 
um, you know, prohibition project that, you know, has, uh, um, and also like particular type of medicalization that is like, you know, like back, maybe back in like the, the late 19th century, you would have had like, you know, your pharmacists or like apothecaries being the ones who like kind of decide your, your drugs. Um, and, and doctors kind of like won out in that war of who gets to, you know, choose to prescribe. Uh, but now it also means that, you know, pharmacists, like I, some of them really do have uh, the background. I've worked with some great like harm reduction pharmacists, but most of them are not, uh, you know, this is not like the, the way they kind of see the world. And like, you know, it, it I think like what we've seen in, in Vancouver, that a lot of these like safe supply programs, like their big limitation is like the doctor's are like the the gatekeeper and like this is just like not the way that they see their kind of expertise uh being used um which is uh fair but unfortunately they also are, you know have kind of fought <laughs> uh, uh to be that gatekeeper and so it, it's kind of um uh yeah no, i know i definitely kind of i feel that idea um too um i i i don't know if you have any thoughts on that so i have another question i mean I think people who use drugs, particularly, you know, uh, uh, illegal drugs, although actually drugs are not illegal, it's just the possession and stuff, but uh, because the substance itself is neither legal nor illegal, but um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I think people who use drugs, they should um, think of it like, you know, if they, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge crowd, so they can form a union and then make pressure on, for example, the, the union of pharmacists or GP or whatever, GPs or whatever. So I think this would be still the right way. And, you know, if, and then, and, and for example, the activism from, from Dolph, for example, I mean, this is exactly what's happening if they don't fulfill what they should, you know? So, um, and, um, yeah, but on, on the other hand, and this is also something I, I need to mention, there are a lot of people who just don't know much about those substances. So there for now, there must be some restrictions. And I know particularly people from this area, they will completely disagree, but they very often forget um, there are restrictions for sunscreen, there are restrictions for uh, shampoo, for face cream, whatever, yeah? for body lotion, for toothpaste. There are a lot of regulations and restrictions. And I just all, I, I try to explain to people, hey, um, doesn't matter if opium or weed, these substances will not become more loosely regulated than face cream. Yeah. <laughs> not just because most people are not aware how much it's a very European it Union response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying that those regulations don't exist in Canada and the United States. I, I'm. I'm just saying that I, I. I think that the average person here is probably far less aware <laughs> of, of of their uh, their existence. Um, than, um, you know, a country with like an overarching regulatory body that, you know, also has a lot, does a lot of these kind of micro regulations at the same time. Uh, I mean, the whole, the whole European Union, for example, they have a, um, they demand for every cosmetic product that there's a safety assessment from professional toxicologists. This is a, 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 a part of my, my bread job. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, a lot of people are not aware of this. They've, they think people can just mix things together and put them in shelves. No, things like stability tests, challenge tests, and this toxicological risk assessment, um, quality parameters. Um, you have to, you know, cosmetovigilance is even a thing, you know. They have to track how many complaints there are per product and so on. So 
Um, and, and this is, uh, and this is, for example, um, in, let's say the, the decriminalized approaches, whether it's, uh, you know, dried mushrooms kind of decriminalized and people selling them, or whether this is, um, this, uh, this activism from, from Dolph, where they, uh, give heroin or cocaine away. Um, these kind of systems are not applied and we long term need to have those applied because there will be batches which are shit and we need to recognize them. Uh, and also, you know, just, just running some drug checking is also not enough. I mean, this is, um, this, so it's, um, um, think about microbiological contaminations, heavy metals and kind of, you know, all, all this, uh, again, same things with, as with uh, pharmaceuticals, food and cosmetics. I don't see why drugs, oh, let me phrase it the other way around. There will be people who earn money with drugs. And I want that they put as much effort in quality control as people uh, who are frying our burgers and uh, selling them to us or um, giving us shakes and face creams and uh, aspirin or whatever. Um, so I don't, if people earn money, they should put some effort in uh, keeping people safe and not just, uh, oh yeah, it's free from fentanyl, so it's fine, you know. Yeah, That's no, the, for sure. And I, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, the, the, the doll folks, you know, think it's like, a, it, it's a, 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 what they're doing is like, you know, uh, as activist work, and it's not meant to be a, a fully like scaled out um, version, um, nor is it like uh, the answer. Like, you know, I, I think there's a general sense that like, yeah, we need like a prescription oriented or not prescription, like in terms of prescribing, but like in terms of the like standards, like the, you know, it's like CGMP specifications, all yeah. of the, like that kind of stuff. Like, um, uh, you know, uh, for, for these substances, um, because like there, you know, there can even be, yeah, just huge variability and, uh, sample and like preparation and like, um, you know, like, uh, all, all the, these kind of things, I, I, I guess like for me, like, uh, you know, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think like, yeah, probably like some sort of, you know, tiered system, but not like a, an inaccessible like wall. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and again, what I mentioned with the union, yeah, I mean, there yeah. will be talks between, for example, uh, a chamber of uh, physicians or pharmacists or whatever. Uh, and again, um, I, I, I really like what social workers are doing. And I think, uh, um, I mean, you could either, uh, you could either argue that some pharmacists needs to be trained in, you know, social work and, uh, um, you know, in, in the whole, you know, uh, yeah, information about drug use using communities. But on the other hand, you can also um, argue about social workers who just get um, doing a training course in, uh, you know, some uh, drug education, some substance knowledge. They are aware of uh, dosing and interactions and so on. So it's, you know, it's uh, uh, pharmacists are no magicians. I mean, they, they, they studied a few years something. And I think if you break it down to the most important stuff, um, I think particularly people who are already working in the field, uh, maybe even yourself, should be able to do, I don't know, a one year's course and then also uh, um, prescribe those kind of substances. Um, and yeah, I also, and as, a, as a form of activism, and I mean, you know, people are dying. Yeah? I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of what they're doing. Don't get me wrong. Um, I just want to still emphasize that long term, there's some work. And I think the, the best approach is what I tried to explain earlier with this unions. So they must establish together a protocol in, in talks um, 
so that if, let's say, pharmacists in certain areas, if they, for example, refuse to give out opioids to people with um, um, opioid use disorder, um, that they get some serious penalties. Yeah, so the, yeah. The, the, just as an example, because I mean, that's that's how it usually goes. If people misbehave all the time, then they get some penalties. And worst case, they have to close their pharmacy. I mean, imagine um, a different um, pathology. Um, even again, you know, a lot of drug use is not pathological, don't get me wrong, but imagine some pharmacists who say, yeah, I don't believe in diabetes, you don't get insulin. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, but in the, in the opioid context, uh, much more people are dying and they refuse to give out those substances. And they are the people who are educated for this. I mean, they're also the money, uh, sorry, the state put a lot of effort in training those pharmacists um, and they give them certain rights, you know, to, to sell drugs and then they don't do it. And then with this, they are harming people. So, so again, I'm, you know, I'm completely the opposite of, of, uh, of uh, uh, someone with a gatekeeping attitude. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> want professionals, professionals in there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, like my, my, like my, my controversial hot take on this all is that, like, uh, uh, you know, is, is I, I actually, I, I agree, but I, I'm becoming more and more kind of sympathetic to the notion that communities, you know, have kind of been directly involved, you know, can and should be, uh, you know, scaled up, uh, kind of like in this, this, this training, um, and, and doing this kind of work for them for themselves, and like, like part part of that's like a uh you know political economy like desire like uh, at least here like you know like being you know charged or you know arrested for like uh possession with the like you know intent to, to traffic like you don't even actually have to be caught trafficking like you 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 could just you, you you could just be in possession that looks like you're trafficking and like that that's its own charge um but um uh even folks who are you are involved in sale like i, I mean I, this might not be like you know at first but like you know i think it's like a, you know like what what are these people you know let, let's say you close down like all the illicit markets right like you know like what are what are all the the people who are involved in these illicit economies um kind of supposed to do at that point and like you know will will, will it, it just you know become worse things um will it you know uh so my thought is like you know why not just like you know bring them in um uh, like a lot of this stuff you know it's like is not like you don't have to have you know like some sort of like experimental design like contributory like expertise for it a lot of it's like interactional expertise there's things that you can kind of like you know learn like i i can i can i don't have a background in chemistry i can i can drug nerd uh as well as well as the rest of um uh you know some folks um uh but that, that, that's just like that that's like my my kind of thoughts like you know how do how do we you know merge these kind of economies while closing out like you know this illicit um market um and it's yeah. not you know it's not pretty <laughs> i'm not gonna say it's a pretty it's a, it's a pretty drug future but it, it it's uh i i think it's a it's a good way of, of moving forward so for certain tasks i'm definitely in for uh, for professionals but this has to be more permeable. So, um, yeah, there must be new strategies how people uh, with lived experience or from, let's say, a social work background um, who can enter these kind of systems. Um, that's, that's, I think, the challenging thing. And um, um, but this is, this is also something we, we uh, in, in Germany, kind of debate. And I'm very interested who 
who will be able to get the license, for example, for selling cannabis. Um, there are also, you know, currently debates if, uh, if you know, pharmacists have the best quality uh, education on this. And uh, particularly when it comes to certain topics, they definitely have not, you know. It's the same if, if someone uh, just with a pharmacy degree is, is not automatically uh, the best person to have a, a winery. Um, and, you know, they might know uh, how the metabolism of alcohol is and what um, um, uh, potential drug-drug interaction there might be. But um, they might not know what grows from which area, what has what type of effects. And, uh, you know, this whole, this is still very relevant trivia. I mean, it's, it's, tr yeah, it's trivia, but it's still relevant for people. Because yeah, well, they, yeah, they might not have the, like, the, the sense of like terroir and uh, French for, <laughs> I'm not gonna remember it anymore. Um, uh, you know, like that this, you know, sense of like the the soil and like you know how the the soil, the different yeah, kind yeah. of soils, like yeah, you know, well, yeah you know, produce produce food <laughs> of, of different, you know, in different kind of ways and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's kind of like yeah, like many kind of different um, expertise. I, I I think that that that's a good place to. Um, uh to kind of wrap it up um i so we're just gonna um uh play a little game called uh would, would you, you do, do this drug, drug? <laughs> um so here 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 are the rules um of the game uh uh i'm gonna get um tell you about a drug a fictional drug um from a tv show a movie uh a book something like that um, and then I'm going to give you a short, um, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a general description of the effects. Um, and then, uh, you know, you tell me like, you know, would you do this drug, um, uh, just for the folks at home and, you know, your bosses, like, you know, this is not a real, um, this, this isn't real. Like, you know, like it's a made up drug, uh, you know, you're not admitting to using drugs or anything like that. So you don't have to worry about that stuff. It's fake. It doesn't exist. Um, uh, so, um, I'm going to play you, um, uh, a clip, which is like the first time we we've done this, uh, that, uh, Claire had picked out, um, uh, for this episode. Um, okay. There's no I in Timosil, at least not where you'd think. So together, let us make a choice, and for once we'll be in sync. Timosil, thought I didn't know you well. Timosil, now I think we really gel. Timosil, Timosil, lady, increase your sex drive. Timosil, good job, buddy. Thanks, friend. Uh, so, uh, uh, Timosil, um, uh, is, uh, <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, the, the name is, uh, uh, might, might be like a play on words for, uh, te amo in Spanish, which means, uh, I, I love you and sil, uh, so which, uh, and sil, which translates to, I love you easily. Um, it's, it's from Arrested Development, uh, uh, 
the drug was promoted by, uh, I don't know if you've seen the show, but the drug was promoted by Tobias with his folk band, uh, Dr. Funk's 100% natural good time family band solution. Um, however, it's just uh, continued after studies proved uh, the feeling of wellness it gives users in relation is a simple precursor to total shutdown of the pituitary gland. Um, the drug may also decrease your sex drive, cause numbness of the extremities and produce a feeling of camaraderie. So Fabian, would you do this drug? Uh, I think I would try a lot of things in, in moderation and, uh, and, um, I, I, I think also, um, I'm a bit fascinated on those substances, which, you know, um, increase bonds between people and even, and particularly if those bonds are very hard. <laughs> um, so I guess, yes. Try everything once, right? You know, like it, it eventually shuts down your pituitary gland, whatever, whatever that could possibly mean. Uh, um, um, you know, like, a, you know, but, you know, at first it sounds kind of nice, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a transient effect with the pituitary gland, right? Uh-huh. Sorry. This is a transient, transient effect, right? Uh, it will be reversible. Uh, it. Uh, it doesn't say, um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, it, like it was discontinued, right? So long-term, you know, they didn't do longitudinal kind of like studies to see whether uh, people's pituitary glands went and started working again. Um, uh, so I guess, I guess we'll find, we'll find out through your, you know, psychonaut experimentation. Um, Okay, uh, uh, perfect. So uh, just before we, we wrap up today, um, you know, is there anything you wanted to, to touch on that, you know, we, we didn't get to talk about? Um, so anything you want to plug um, as your chance? But yeah, with regard to uh, advertisement, I mean, Encore is mentioned a couple of times. And if this comes out within um, the, the next couple of days, uh, I think the Just Coca meeting is also mentioned. So the Just Coca uh, will be on the 18th and 19th of May. So um, if you put this online somewhere, of course you can uh, um, put somewhere a link uh, if you want to. But um, but I think I think this was also already mentioned. So um, so no, I don't have anything else. Um, okay, so so Just Coca May 18th through to the 19th. Yeah, JustCoca.org and yeah, Just Coca. The event is uh, uh, from the 18th to the 19th. Thank you for listening to the Drug Futurisms podcast. More information and resources for this episode are available in the show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, you could support us at patreon.com slash drugfuturisms, give us a good rating on iTunes, or share this podcast with a friend. Drug Futurisms is produced and hosted by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo, our cover artist is Brooke Payne, and our original music was produced by Jake Goodison. Until next time, remember, another drug world is possible.